right, all right, all right. Here we go. How's everybody doing? Fantastical. Everybody get their second volume? Volume one, volume two. Yes? All right. Uh, let's pray, and then we will begin, and I think we begin at John chapter 10. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and grace and mercy. We rejoice in the life that you've given us through Jesus Christ. Help for us to understand that more fully tonight so that we might live more faithfully for your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right. Well, um, as we ended up last week in John chapter 9, if you remember, uh, in John chapter 9, we have the encounter between Jesus and a blind man whom he gives sight to, and then uh, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, uh, and the Sadducees, they all gang up and they're uh, perturbed that Jesus had done such miraculous things, so they determined that they were going to find a cause against Jesus. They had already set in motion the wheels uh, of uh, uh, of uh, trying to quieten him down, uh, those uh, wheels had yet uh, to fulfill their intended purpose. Uh, we begin to see in chapter 9 uh, and chapter 10 and 11 and then 12 uh, the heat on Jesus ramping up. Uh, we begin to see that, uh, the, uh, especially in chapter 12, the religious leaders are uh, going to become more and more intent on killing Jesus. And so, uh, as we look at the landscape of the passages uh, in these next few chapters, let's remember uh, the context. Jesus is not going to the cross uh, unwillingly. We'll see in a few moments, uh, if we get that far, we'll see in a few moments that Jesus goes to the cross intentionally. Uh, this is God's determined will. And so Jesus gives himself to that future. Uh, it's not without its drama and it's not without its difficulty, but Jesus gives himself to the mission that God had given him, and that was to die on a cross for sinners like you and me. Uh, so let's remember that Jesus initiates, uh, as we come to chapter 18, he will initiate uh, the events that lead to his death. Um, and, and leading up to that, we see that the religious leaders are acting in a way that uh, although it is wicked and evil, God turns that toward his greater purpose. That is a term called combatalism, uh, combatibilism, 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 or something like that. Uh, and, and that means that uh, God takes the, uh, the activity of individuals, even the wicked activity of individuals, and moves that activity toward his intended purpose. And that's going to come through as we see in John chapter 11 with the words of Caiaphas uh, and in John chapter 12 in Jesus' confrontation 
with the religious leaders, uh, and then uh, even as it goes further in his arrest in John 18. So uh, we need to understand that Jesus is not a passive player uh, in the plotting of the religious leaders. He understood what they were about. He understood what they were doing. And so uh, he moves forward, always fixed on the cross. Now, this is going to be important for us as followers of Jesus in this way. So often, we believe that our greatest ethic is to be free from pain. Our greatest desires is to experience comfort, to be released from the drama of despair. And yet we call ourselves followers of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we need to understand that even in our pain, even in the pain that others have inflicted upon us, that God's purpose doesn't die. Uh, In fact, God turns even the most difficulty, uh, greatest of difficulties and deepest of despairs toward his glory in our lives. Our goal is not to have freedom from anxiety or stress or suffering or sorrow. Those are, those are things that I want in my life, but that's not my purpose as a follower of Jesus. I, I, we're, we're not masochists. We don't want to experience bad times. But what we need to understand, and this is not just the gospel of John. This is the whole of scripture. What we need to understand is that Our goal is not to escape pain, but rather to give God glory. That is the purpose of Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. Therefore, that must be our purpose as well. So when we examine the course of our lives, we need to ask ourselves the questions. Am I just trying to escape the pain? Or am I seeking to give God glory? In John chapter 10, uh, we see, well, at the end of John uh, 9, it says in verse 40, uh, some of the Pharisees who were with Jesus heard his words and said to him, are we blind also? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you, you would have no sin, but now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin remains. Uh, As he's talking to them, he's saying, uh, you acknowledge that you see, uh, but you refuse to embrace the one whom the Father has sent, Jesus Christ. Therefore, your sin remains. Ultimately, what Jesus is telling the religious leaders and telling us tonight is there is no help for those who reject the only help there is. There is no help for those who reject the only help there is. And the only help that there is as we look throughout John 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, the only help there is is Jesus. All right, so John chapter 10 uh, introduces one of the great statements. Now, we have, looked at, uh, the, uh, we have looked at passages where 
there are the I am statements. And, and these I am statements, uh, Jesus says, I am, and then there's usually something that goes after that. Uh, in the Greek, it is ego, I, me, okay? And uh, as we look, we see in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, uh, verse uh, 10, he says, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 28, he says, I am. In John chapter 10, where we are today, we see that Jesus calls himself the door of the sheep and the good shepherd. I am the door for the sheep and I am the good shepherd. In these uh, passages, we see that, that Jesus is making uh, headway uh, to declare that he is the true source of hope and everything else is a fake and a fraud and a farce. Now, just listen to these words in, in verse 1 of chapter 10. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the uh, sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief, that's kleptes, from which we get kleptomaniac, and a robber, lestes. Uh, kleptes is someone who is self-seeking in their desire for power over someone, something, or just for himself. Lestes is the same word that we find in the story of the Good Samaritan uh, where Jesus said that there was a man who went up uh, from Jericho and he fell among thieves or bandits. That's lestes, okay? So a lestes is a bandit. A kleptes is a thief. He goes on and he says, Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow after him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration but they didn't understand the things which he spoke to them. Verse 7, then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come to, except to kill, uh, to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling. He doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
And I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And the other sheep, uh, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. As we look at this passage, I I just want to call your attention to a few thoughts. First of all, uh, there are these dangerous enemies of peace. Uh, Ultimately, anything that we entrust our life to outside of Jesus and his will is an enemy to peace. Uh, We see in verse 1 and verse 8 that there are crooked pathways. Uh, These are the Uh, These are those who uh, uh, offer peace uh, by a door that has little or nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, These are individuals who are fakes and frauds. These are philosophies that are false and a farce. Anything that does not tie itself to Jesus and his will as revealed in God's holy word is a crooked pathway, and it corrupts us and leaves us fearful and empty. The crooked pathways that we embrace often are things that we attempt on our own. Uh, In other words, we become our own worst enemy. We are our own thief and robber. We want position and power for ourselves. We want control on our own. We become a bandit to our own soul, robbing us of the peace that Jesus offers because we're seeking to embrace a crooked pathway where we leave Jesus out of the equation of our life and we go our own way. Sometimes... These crooked pathways are ideas or even ideals that we hold on to. No one would have imagined that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were a crooked pathway, following a crooked pathway. But there's no doubt that Jesus had in mind these religious leaders when he was calling out thieves and robbers. Just because you look religious or behave religiously does not mean that you're not following a crooked pathway. Anytime we embrace religious devotion that has nothing to do with Jesus except words that we recite or things we might say, We are walking a crooked pathway. The measure of evaluation for the pathway we're on is 
this. Is this the pathway that Jesus walked? Is this the direction that Jesus gives? Not what the preacher says, not what our traditions say, but is this what Jesus has said? So often in my line of work, I am faced with this dilemma. Seeking to lead in a specific direction that sometimes feels like it confronts the very things that we hold dear in our religion. And we balk and we cry foul And you say, we haven't done it this way before. And we act as if that is the measure of whether or not it's the right pathway or the wrong. Friends, in my line of work, I don't have the luxury of pleasing a tradition and following after it, or an ideology and following after it, or, follow, uh, or, or um, uh, in, in the climate that we just got out of, thank the Lord, we don't have to worry about, well, we still have to worry about the president, but we don't have to debate that. We have a president, and we rejoice in that, and we pray for him. But as we were leading up to that, so many were concerned at some of the things that I said. As if I was somehow now liberal instead of conservative. And the reason that became a debate was not because we were evaluating what Jesus said, but rather we were evaluating what Fox News said. Do we not see the inconsistencies there? We, it got quiet, we, it's okay, it's all right, it is okay, I'm not, it, it doesn't hurt my feelings, I know that there are some that thought that, that, we, that, that, that we were in a fight, we're not in a fight, it's okay, but my job is not to lead you down a primrose path toward a philosophy or an ideology that divorces itself from the commands and the call of Christ. My job, whether we like it or not, whether I enjoy it or not, my job is to help point us to the good shepherd and follow after him. And make no mistake, that will confront us in our crooked pathways. I appreciate When people come to me and say, the Bible says this, and that seems to contradict what you have said. I love those conversations. The conversations that hurt my heart are the ones that have nothing to do with the Bible, have everything to do with those things that we hold dear.
The Bible's never mentioned. When we look at Jesus, we need to understand that there are pathways. There are thieves and robbers that lead to distress and despair and emptiness for us. Because we're walking the pathway apart from the Good Shepherd. Throughout this passage, Jesus makes it clear that if you want to be safe and secure, you better stay close to the Good Shepherd. And I'm afraid that sometimes we have made it our business to be our own good shepherd. As if we can secure peace for ourselves apart from the clear teaching of Jesus. It's hard. It's not easy for me. I know it's not easy for you. But we must recognize, we must see and see clearly the crooked pathway. Uh, He goes on and he talks not only about crooked pathways, but tied to the crooked pathway are selfish ambitions. These are are people who are motivated by a selfish interest uh, who give temporary allegiance uh, to people uh, but leave them when things get bad. I have pastor friends uh, who have uh, stayed at a church for a period of time, and, and then when the honeymoon is over, they begin to look for greener pastors. Things get tough, and they decide they're going to walk. And then they blame it on God. Now, I am confident that there are great godly men who have left one church to go to another because that's what God was leading them to do. I know those men. I love those men. But there are also others that the minute some sort of disappointment happens in a family of faith or a group rises up and doesn't think that the preacher preaches all that well anymore. That that preacher decides, you know what, I'm not going to stick around for this. They start preparing their resume and start sending it out. I believe that is a picture of a hireling in verses 12 and 13. The hireling flees when he hears the wolf howl. The hireling flees when it's no longer convenient for him to hang out. Ultimately, he's using a group of people for his own ends. And when it stops being a benefit to him, he bails. More to Jesus' point, though, 
He's talking about every person, every ideology, every philosophy that is not connected to him, it will leave you wanting, especially when times get tough. It will leave you distressed and filled with despair and empty. Why? Because those ideas, those philosophies, they're temporary fixes to an eternal problem. They're they're a band-aid on a bullet wound. And Jesus is calling attention to his hearers to this one truth. Don't embrace the dangerous enemy of any ideology that offers some temporary uh, enjoyment but, but doesn't point you to Jesus. I worry, I do, I worry about you. I worry about you embracing ideas or thoughts or following after people that are obviously using you for their own ends. Catering to you while it's convenient for them, then abandoning you when the wolf begins to howl. I worry that we follow after thieves and robbers instead of connecting our lives to Jesus, the good shepherd. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying in John chapter 10 is that there's only one door, and he's it. And there's only one shepherd, and he's the one. There's only one way for you and for me to experience abundant life. There's only one way for you and me to experience the saturating love of our Heavenly Father. And and, and there's only one way for us to, to experience the pasture that we read about in Psalm 23. The only way is Jesus. Everything else is a fake and a fraud, a farce. And false. Jesus is the only one who can give us abundant life. And that picture of abundant life is more than just good times filled within a time frame. Abundant life is life at its very best for all eternity. How does Jesus give us this abundant life because he lays down his life for the sheep. He's the one who dies for sinners. He's the one who has set his face toward Jerusalem so that he might take the place of slaughter for the sin that he had never committed. He's the one who provides forgiveness for sin, he and he alone. Not what you do, not how religious you are, 
But only by his grace through faith in him is there any hope for peace. There's but one door. There's but one good shepherd. His name is Jesus. Are you following him? Are you trusting him? Or have you put your trust in thieves and robbers? Well, that's a summary. As we uh, move on, I don't know what page, but uh, uh, as you look in this passage, uh, it comes to a head down in verse 16, verse 15. He says, as the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, Jesus, his emphasis is not living free from pain. His emphasis is, I'm doing what God has sent me to do, regardless the pain that it means for me. Do we have that kind of passion? I'm going to do what God has given me to do, regardless the pain it means for me. God did not destine me to walk this earth pain-free, without sorrow or suffering. If he did, Jesus would have never said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow after me. Jesus wouldn't have said, as he prays in John 17, Father, I don't pray that you'd take them out of the world, but I pray that, that you might show them your power as they live in this world that is hostile toward them. God has placed us in enemy territory. And daily we live in this enemy territory, not so that we could cuddle up together and just find comfort. He's placed us in enemy territory so that we might fulfill his mission and that mission is described in verse 16 look at it he says other sheep I have which are not of this fold he's talking about the Gentiles we'll see this more in in John chapter 12 verse 20 He, he says there are other sheep I have which are not of this fold them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. He's saying, he's saying there is a mission to the broader world outside of the Jewish circle. Even though in John 1 we see that Jesus uh, uh, came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus says here that, that there are many more who are not of this fold. And many more outside the Jewish circle. And Jesus said the mission is to bring them into the fold. So there's no longer Jew and there's no longer Greek, but there is only the flock that follows the good shepherd. And that mission was given to us. Jesus promised in Matthew 28 that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. And that is the picture of him walking with us, but he's walking with us on a mission. What is that mission? 
as you go make disciples of all people. Not just my friends, not just those who gather here in this room, but those out there who are desperate for life and hope and, yes, peace. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd even of them who have yet to hear and receive me, but they will hear and they will receive me. And he's given that mission to us, not so that we could cuddle together in our comfort, but so that we might go out into enemy territory. He might say, well, it's not safe out there. Do you not understand the culture in which we live? Yes. It's not safe out there. But friends, we're followers of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we have not the right to sit in our comfort and safety and ignore the very mission that he's given us to fulfill. This is our calling. Whether it's safe or not, it makes me uncomfortable to talk to somebody about Jesus. I know. I get it. But it's our calling. It's our mission. It's what Jesus has given us to do. We'll hit that a little bit more in John 17. All right. So as Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, he he says that here is this mission of peace toward those who are outside this flock. And, and, uh, and, and so Jesus says in verse 17, the father loves me because I'll lay down my life that I may take it again. Again, you hear the note, not of comfort, but of sacrifice. Is that the passion that drives us? Sacrifice to accomplish God's purpose. Again, if we're following after the good shepherd, that must be our heartbeat. To stay close to Jesus and be safe means that we have to be safe with him as we go into uncomfortable situations. That's where he's leading us. Jesus says, I lay down my life willingly. Verse 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus is just doing what God told him to do. And friends, we need to be doing the same thing. So in verse 19, it says, There's a division among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He is a demon. He's mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So as we look here, beginning in verse 19, we see that there is this, this conflict over who Jesus is. Verse 22, it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. It was, uh, it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, and the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. My goodness, he's, he's, he's opened the eyes of a blind man. He's connected himself to the Son of Man. He has identified himself 
already. Look at verse 25. Jesus said, I told you, and you didn't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you don't believe because you're not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep, hear my voice, and, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them, snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I and my Father are one. As we look at this, and, and I'm not going to take time, you can look at the, the notes there on whatever page that is, 56, 57, 58, somewhere in there. Uh, you can look at those notes and, and, and see, but, but here's what Jesus said. As the, as the religious leaders crowded around him, they were urging him to give an answer, and that answer that they desired was one that would, they would be able to use uh, con to condemn him. Uh, again, they were looking for information uh, where they could accuse him and, and uh, bring, uh, uh, bring about his demise. And so uh, Jesus says, just look at my works. My works bear witness of who I am. I told you who I am. You just don't believe. But when he ends this little statement where, where the red ink stops in this passage, he says, I and my Father are one. And that was heresy. Plain and simple. That was blasphemy. To the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to, to the religiously uh, inclined, him saying, I and my Father were, are one, is akin to him saying, I am God. It calls attention to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jesus says, I and my Father are one. The religious leaders regardless of how Jesus meant it or how John was writing it, the religious leaders took it one way, blasphemy. And so they took up stones to, to, to kill Jesus. And Jesus said in verse 32, Many good works I've shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? And they said, uh, For a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man make yourself God. You see how they took it. And Jesus said, is it not written in the law, I said, you are God's, little G-O-D-S, if he called them, little G-O-D-S, to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus turns to scripture in Psalm 82 6, where uh, the psalmist writes, I said, You are God's. In this psalm, God is speaking to judges who exercise judgment on behalf of God himself. But these judges, uh, even though they were operating on behalf of God himself, uh, they would die. 
The point Jesus is making is that if these judges who speak on behalf of God can in some sense be called God, then how much more is this designation appropriate for him who truly is the Son of God? Jesus places his opponents on the horns of dilemma. He he says, you can stone me, but then you're violating the very scripture that you claim to hold dear. Scripture itself, as they viewed it, is inviolable. It's, it's unalterable. It's undying. The word of God itself is eternal and, and has eternal, uh, eternal uh, 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 power and effectiveness. It's, it's like the Constitution of the United States. If I hear textualists and what's the other word? Originalist on news one more time, I'm going to just I'm just going to cry. <laughs> but that's that that's how the Pharisees viewed the word of God. It was uh, it was textualist and it's originalist. Now here's the problem: they they didn't just hold to scripture; they held to their own traditions. They said the word is inviolable and how I interpret it is also the most important thing. And so they began to add all of these different conditions and requirements and laws that that would help them uh, fulfill how they viewed Scripture ought to be taken. What Jesus did here and what he does, uh, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, y'all remember Matthew uh, uh, chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, what he does there is he takes the Word of God, and he interprets it the way God intends for it to be interpreted. And he throws on its head the interpretation of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. Here, Jesus says, you believe the Word of God, and yet you want to stone me uh, because I say that I'm the Son of God. And here in in the Psalms, they say, it says, you are gods. And we know that uh, that psalm is not speaking about truly God's people, God, God themselves, you know. Um, and so and Jesus just kind of kind of wows them and throws them in a tizzy, and they don't really know what to do with it. By the way, the Word of God is a very powerful thing. I know I just went in a circle. Uh, <laughs> that'll look really good on Facebook. Uh, the Word of God is so powerful. It's powerful in my life because there are things that, that I'm uncomfortable with at times. I know that's hard to believe. I'm, I, I really am a type A person. And my personality, type A, and, and that means I like to be in the box. I don't like to be outside the box. So when I have to go outside the box, it's uncomfortable In fact, I will talk myself into staying inside the box and God gives me his word, scripture itself, to push me outside my box. The word of God is very powerful and sometimes you're going to have to be faced with stepping outside the box that you enjoy. And when you are forced to do that, and you come to me and you say, Eric, I just don't, I don't like this and I don't like that and, 
You won't hear me say, I don't like it either. That's just not how I do things, but I probably don't enjoy it. But don't come to me with just feelings. Come to me with the Word of God. See, it's the Word of God that directs our steps, not our emotions. It's the Word of God that directs our steps, not our traditions. And that's what Jesus was confronting the Pharisees on. Saying, stop depending on all these other things. Essentially, he says, you're not of my sheep. You don't believe me. You're not going to believe me. You see me, but you don't see me. Um, he's saying, you're, you're, you're reprobate. That's a big theological term that we'll get at in John chapter 12. Reprobate. All right, so, um, uh, so Jesus uh, withdrew from the uh, religious leaders, all right? And uh, he, he went uh, beyond the Jordan there. Uh, because they wanted to kill him, and it wasn't his time yet. Then we come to John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, we have, again, this wonderful, wonderful... Oh, and this is... Uh, is this the beginning of... Yeah, this is the beginning of volume two. Uh, we come to John chapter 11, and uh, John chapter 11 uh, includes another I am statement. Ego I me, I am the resurrection and the life, Okay. So we've, we've seen the other I am statements. I'm, I'm, the, uh, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the light of the world. Uh, I am who I am. Uh, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Uh, now in John 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, what led him to say that, obviously, was, was a circumstance that was happening uh, and this is the death of Lazarus. As you know, probably, uh, Jesus had a special friendship with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, the brother and the two sisters. And Jesus had a very special relationship with them. Uh, and, uh, and so Lazarus gets sick, and Jesus gets word uh, that Lazarus is, going, uh, is, is uh, struggling with health. Um, but I, I want you to take note, and these are some hard truths that we need to hear. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 1. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the, uh, uh, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, behold, him who, he whom you love is sick. Verse 4, Jesus said, uh, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's, that's the key verse in this passage. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard uh, that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Verse 6 is really hard, okay? Because we believe that the best thing we can do when someone is in need is immediately respond. That, that's, that's how we think. And, and if I'm sick and, and I call and say, I'm sick, and, and you don't come to see me after me calling you, I, I'm thinking you don't care. Well, and, and, and you would think the same thing about Jesus. Martha definitely thought that about Jesus. And so he said, uh, he said that, John writes, he says uh, that uh, he heard that Lazarus was sick 
And you would think that the next phrase was, so he left where he was and raced toward Bethany. That's what you would think in verse 6. But that's not what it reads, and that's not what Jesus did. He had word that Lazarus was sick, so he stayed two more days where he was ministering. Now, why in the world would he do that? John had just said that he loved Martha and he loved Mary and he loved Lazarus. Why? Why would he stay two more days? Verse 4 is the key. For God's glory. For God's glory. Today we look at, at, our, at, at our lives and and we look at the pain that we endure, the sickness that we're suffering, or the struggles that we face, and we look at the vortex of despair that creeps into our soul, and and we're thinking, why doesn't Jesus help me? And the answer is, for God's glory. I know that's not an easy answer. And by the way, and somebody comes to me and says, you know, I've been suffering with this whatever it is for this long and God hadn't helped me and I don't understand why God doesn't help me. I don't respond by saying, well, it's for God's glory. That might be true theology, but it's bad pastorally, right? And, and that, that, that's, that's just, that's a, that's a rookie pastor mistake, right? That's a rookie pastor. I'm not a rookie. Uh, but as we, as we look at the deeper significance of suffering, There's no doubt that it's for God's glory. Now, we don't enjoy that. We don't like that. But that Martha didn't like it. I I mean, I wish you you could could read the Greek and understand some of the the Greek phrases here that that really uh, show the bitterness in Martha, right? I mean, Martha was mad, okay? Um, so anyway, he doesn't go and, uh, and, and then, uh, uh, Jesus comes up and, and, and I'm skipping down to, to verse 17. Jesus came and he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days and Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother and Martha. As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That was not a kind statement. Uh, In the Greek, it's a conditional clause, but the conditional clause is flavored with accusation and rebuke. Jesus, why weren't you here? We thought you loved us. Why weren't you here? It is interesting that Jesus does not rebuke Martha for her bitterness. He doesn't. He understands it. I love that about Jesus. In my deepest pain, in my deepest deepest grief when I lash out toward God because I'm hurting so deeply inside. I love it that God understands. 
And Jesus, uh, oh, Martha added a Sunday school answer, by the way. Uh, so she, she let her bitterness fly, right? And, and uh, y'all, y'all been on the receiving end of that kind of stuff, haven't you? It's a real passive-aggressive move, right? And, and it, it is. It's, it's a dig. It's a, it's a kick in the shin. It's a knife that, that, that she's trying to place strategically in Jesus' soul, right? I mean, I mean, she's trying to hurt him. He wasn't here. And, and we've been on the receiving end of that. And, but, but then she tries to regain her religious composure. And she says, uh, verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So she's saying, she's saying okay, I, I, I've been ugly. And, and she tries to backtrack a little bit maybe. And she says, I, I know that God can, 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 can do what you ask him to do. And, and so Jesus said in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And again, she gives a Sunday school answer. She says, I, I know he'll one day rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Martha is bound, as we all are, by the way. This isn't, an, this isn't an accusation against Martha. She was bound humanly, as we all are humanly. All she could see was her brother's gone, she's hurting, and Jesus showed up late. So why in the world would Jesus say, I, I, your brother will rise again? Why would, why would he say that? It kind of struck a chord in her, and she, she, she made, again... Jesus wasn't trying to be a good pastor in that moment. That, that wasn't a good... <laughs> I mean, he probably was a great pastor moment, but, but not one that, that, that as a pastor you really want to uh, emulate too much, if you can help it. But it, it's, it's, oh yeah, your brother's going to rise again. And, 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 and yet Martha's like, okay, well, I'll shoot back this Sunday school answer again. And, and I know that in the last day, at the resurrection, then I'll see him again, all right? And again, she, she was bound by her human sight, her, her human emotion. She was bound like the rest of the world was. Death was death. There's no answer for death. That's it. But Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this she said yes lord i believe that you are the christ the son of god who has come into the world something in jesus's words or his manner or his facial expressions i don't know what it was but something sunk into the depths of martha's heart and she realized wait a second exactly Wait a second. She said, you're the Messiah. And death is not too big for you. She came to a realization that the battle wasn't over yet. She came to understand something more about Jesus than what she knew before. I, I think that for us, living on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, I think, I think it would be better for us to 
focus on Jesus as the resurrection and the life in the face of our own difficult moments. It doesn't mean it will be without pain. It just means that it will always be filled with victory. See, we will face those moments that are filled with sorrow, grief, and pain. But because of Jesus, every moment of sorrow, grief, and pain is filled with victory. The good news is that that victory happened pretty quickly. Sometimes we're, we're still in the midnight waiting for the morning. But for Lazarus and Mary and Martha, it happened pretty quickly. It says, uh, verse 28, when she had said these things, she went away uh, and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. Y'all just stop for a second. I mean, just think of that. Martha had such an intimate relationship with Jesus. She'd gone and it was going through a roller coaster of emotions. And she declares with faith, you are the Christ. You're the Son of God who's come into the world. And then she leaves. She finds Mary secretly and she says, hey, Mary, the teacher's here. And he wants to see you. The emotion that drips off those words. The power that comes from those words. I think about Edie or the girls. I think about my parents, my brothers, their families. Think about my friends. And I want them to know Jesus so well that I can come up and I'd say, Hey, the teacher's here. And he wants to see you. I think sometimes we don't invite people to meet Jesus because we have spent so much of our days outside of friendship with him. I'm not saying we're not going to heaven when we die. I'm just saying we're not in fellowship with Jesus. We're not not following him. We're not staying close to him. We respond more like the Pharisees with and circling around him and accusing him and, and, and berating him and, and trying to get him to be our Santa Claus. And, 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 and yet Martha, she, in the deepest pain of her soul, throws a dig at Jesus and Jesus takes it. And he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe? 
And Jesus speaks those words to us tonight and it should spark in us the faith of Martha that says, oh no, I believe. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God who's come into the world. Hold right there. I need to get Mary. She needs you. Mary, the teacher's here. He wants to see you. Anyway, as uh, Mary hears that Jesus has come, she arose quickly and came to him, verse 29. Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him and the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her. And when they saw Mary rise up quickly and went out, followed her and said, she's going to the tomb to weep there. And Mary came where Jesus was and she saw him and she fell down at his feet. She said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have died, would, would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping. And he groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. And he looked around and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? Why did Jesus cry? I think that for some, there is the idea that Jesus wept because he hurt for those who were hurting. Now, he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And he wept because they were weeping. I think there's truth to that. And then there are some who say that Jesus wept because of the unbelief of those Jews who were around there. Wrangling around, crying, mourning, and they just couldn't see Jesus the way Martha saw him. And I think there's truth to that. Still others think that Jesus wept, and maybe this hits a little bit closer to the text. Jesus wept because of death. He looked back at the moment of his creative work, calling the sun, moon, and stars into their orbits. He looked back to that moment when he breathed the breath of life into Adam. And Eve. He looked back on the delight in the garden before sin made home in a human heart. And he thought to himself, this death is not the way it's supposed to be. This isn't the way we created it. I think Jesus felt all those emotions. 
He wept because those he loved were hurting. He wept in his humanity for the loss of Lazarus and the pain that that caused Mary and Martha. He wept because these Jewish folk were rolling around, acting all spiritual, and they just didn't believe. He wept because of how bad the world had become and still is today because of sin itself. So Jesus, in a crescendo and and make no mistake, this is a crescendo in the narrative of John's gospel. Jesus went to the tomb and he said, roll away the stone. And they said, it's going to be stinky. And he said, roll away the stone. They rolled away the stone and Jesus cried out for Lazarus to come forth. Guys, I, I, I don't think that there's a way for me to shock us into The awesomeness of this, of this text. We've read it. You've heard it. You know it. But do you understand that Jesus spoke at death's door and brought his friend back into the world of the living. The shockwaves that that sent throughout all of Palestine and Judea. One who was dead now lives. Loose him. Let him go. He's alive. We see it, we hear it, we read it, we know the story, but do we understand? This is the power of God through Christ toward us. Yes, we face sorrow and pain and grief, but the safest place for us to be is walking hand in hand with the good shepherd who is the resurrection and the life. The safest place for us to be is not cuddled in the comfort, uh, uh, escaping all the dangers and the discomforts around us, but rather walking headlong into the difficulties, headlong into the danger, headlong into the howling wolves den understanding that we are walking hand in hand with Jesus and there is no safer place to be for this is the one who calls into death's abyss Lazarus come forth we moan and we complain about the splinters in our soul Lazarus was dead And Jesus brought victory. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus never looked at death the same way. And we shouldn't either. As we see what Jesus has done, 
we begin, and by the way, I just skipped all kinds of different pages there. Um, as we see what Jesus had done, we see in verse 45 through 57 that there is a plot that arises to kill him. Verse 45, it says, many of the Jews had come to Mary and they had seen the things Jesus did and they believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told uh, them the things Jesus did. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The concern of the Pharisees was not that this is a guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. There's no debate about that. Their concern was, it's not safe. If we don't do something about this Jesus, then the Romans are going to come in and they're going to take our place. They're going to take away our city. It's going to be bad for us. It's better to kill him than to suffer through all the struggles that the Romans would inflict on us. Oh, guys, listen. Isn't that what we do every time we opt for something safe rather than following after Jesus? Isn't that what we do every time we ignore the commands of Jesus because it scares us of what might happen if we actually do what his commands tell us to do? The Pharisees were being very logical. But they were denying the importance of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Guys, there is no other sign of being from God than what, what Jesus did. He, 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 he gave sight to blind people, John 9. He raises Lazarus from the dead, John 11. And all the Pharisees could think about was, we better protect ourselves. God help us. Followers of Jesus, God help us. That we don't exalt our safety as we can manage it, our security as we can control it, above following after Jesus Christ. Caiaphas then begins to talk, and, and uh, here's what he says. Um, verse 49, he says, um, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the nation and not the whole nation should perish. What he's saying is, it's the Spock thing. Y'all, some, some of y'all watch the, the Spock the movie and, and Spock goes and he goes into, the, uh, goes into the, the, the chamber with all the radioactive stuff in order to save the Enterprise and he goes in and, and, uh, and, and he does that and he, 
he, he, you see in the movie, I, I think it's number two or number three, uh, uh, I guess that's 20 years ago, but uh, anyway, he's, he's there, he's there, and, and, and he, he does his little thing. Kirk comes, and he sees Spock, uh, you know, on the, on the ground, and, and, and he says, Spock, you're, you're going to die, you know, that kind of thing, and, 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 and Spock says, uh, essentially what Kaifa says, he says, you know, it's better for one to die to save the many, right? Uh, and, uh, and so then he does, live long and prosper, James Kirk, right? I can do that one too. So that's what Caiaphas was saying. He said, let's kill Jesus because it's better for Jesus to die than the whole nation perish. Again, very logical. Now, now John then adds a note. Um, at, verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Verse 54, therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. Um, uh, oh, verse 51, I'm sorry. Now, this he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 51 is a very challenging verse, only in the sense that it shows how Caiaphas's wicked intention is being used by God as a prophecy for Jesus who would die for the nation. Caiaphas, who had no inclination to do anything for God, but rather kill the Son of God, God was using his words as a prophetic promise that Jesus was going to die for the nation. In the language of the text, Caiaphas did not say this on his own authority. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means that God, this is compatibilism, that God was orchestrating events, even the bad intention of Caiaphas, toward the greater redemptive purpose, the salvation of the nation, although that salvation wouldn't come the way the Sanhedrin desired. John adds that little note, and it's, 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 a, it's, a, uh, it's an interesting note. Uh, there's more that I say in footnotes, and y'all can look at that. All right, so it goes on, and, and, uh, and, and so Jesus no longer uh, uh, operates openly among the Jews. Verse 54, 55, Passover of the Jews was near. Many went from uh, the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? that he will come to the feast. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, they should report it so that the Sanhedrin could kill him. Uh, then chapter 12, we get to the anointing at Bethany. Um, uh, six days before the Passover, Lazarus, uh, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus who, uh, was, who had been dead and whom he had raised from the dead. I just love how John just throws that in there. Remember, this is the guy, I mean, this is, this is the guy that was dead and Jesus raised from the dead. Uh, verse 2, they, they uh, made him a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was, uh, was one of those who sat uh, at the table with Jesus. So uh, verse 2 is more uh, kind of an explanatory. Even though 
Lazarus was dead and Jesus raised him from the dead, Lazarus still ate food. Kind of the point there. Verse 3, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, house was filled with fragrance of oil. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, we know him, right? Uh, Simon's son, who would betray him, John wants to make sure we know him. He said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And, And he said, he said, not that he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, kleptes, he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Um, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this day for the day of my burial. She has kept this for the day of my burial. Uh, for the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. And so the point here is that Mary, overwhelmed with deep love for Jesus, audaciously worshipped him. The critics, the haters, didn't like it. Jesus didn't care that they didn't like it. Mary didn't care that they didn't like it. One of the things we need to learn about worship, folks, is that it is not confined to the forms in which we are comfortable, but rather it is confined to the forms in which God delights. And God delights in worship from a heart holy, sold out, and abandoned to him. We get hung up on forms and styles and sounds and stuff. And God's uninterested. What God cares about is your heart. Period. And he delights when we are audacious in our worship of him. So, uh, verse 9, a great many of the Jews knew that Jesus was in Bethany, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death. Why would, the, why would they care about putting Lazarus to death? Yeah, get rid of the evidence. They didn't want anybody to hear it. They, this guy's going down, okay? Um, Verse 12, the next day a great multitude come to the feast, and when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And Jesus, uh, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. A donkey's cold, and his disciples didn't understand. Again, footnote, verse 16. Disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees are panicked because of how many people are celebrating Jesus. Uh, Verse uh, 20 introduces... um, Uh, something significant uh, for us to look at. uh, And uh, I'm going to skip over the triumphal entry so we can get to verse 20 through 50. Verses 20 through 50 talks about Gentiles coming to Jesus to see him. Uh, It says, 
there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip, who was uh, from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew told Philip, uh, Andrew and Philip told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most surely I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Jesus understood his mission, that he would be glorified in his passion. The hour that he describes there in verse 23 is the hour of his death and his exaltation. Uh, It is the whole of the passion, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension. And Jesus understood that the hour had come. As these Greeks, these Gentiles came to Jesus uh, it was almost as a, 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 a switch was being flipped. And Jesus understood, now's the time. I've been waiting for this moment. But then he gives some direction here. He says, he says in verse 25 and 20, uh, by the way, the manner of his death, unless a grain falls into the ground and dies, uh, it's not going to produce fruit. But if it falls into the ground and it dies, it will produce fruit. Jesus was showing that he's the seed He's going to fall into the ground. He's going to die so that the fruit of salvation for God's glory would take place among the peoples. And we are evidence of his fruitfulness as we've gathered here tonight. Verse 25 and 26, again, Jesus calls us out of comfort zones and toward danger. He said, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He says, stop trying to protect yourself and just follow me. If you're going to serve me, you're going to follow me. And where I am, there you're going to be also. The safest place for you to be is not huddled up and in the corner trying to protect yourself. The safest place for us to be is hand in hand with Jesus going where he sends us, serving him, following him. That's where we need to be. Stop acting like you're playing it safe. Really, We're just being rebellious. Because God honors those who follow Jesus. Not those who ignore where Jesus is going. Verse 27, he goes on and he says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Now, Jesus sympathizes with us in this moment because he's tested and he's struggling and, and my soul is deeply troubled. He's, he's in pain. This is his Garden of Gethsemane moment in the Gospel of John. Now, my soul is deeply troubled. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But it's for this very purpose that I have come. Jesus would not allow his fears, his struggles, his anxieties, his stressors, his 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 trouble internally to derail him from the very purpose that God had sent him. So as followers of Jesus, we need to walk the same path as Jesus did. We should never allow our fears, our stressors, our struggles, our pain, our 
our, our desires for pleasures, our, 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 our disappointments derail us from the very purpose that God had given us. God sent Jesus headlong into trouble to accomplish his purpose. Why in the world would he not do the same for us? There's an author named F.F. F. Bruce, um, and uh, he wrote a lot of New Testament stuff. Uh, but one of his books uh, is The Hard Sayings of Jesus. You ought to get that book. Anyway, uh, these are some hard sayings. Uh, so uh, a voice, uh, oh, oh, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And that was his focus. God, I want you to be glorified. So a voice comes from heaven um, uh, saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the people who stood by and heard it uh, thundered. and said, said, Some said it had thundered and some said an angel has spoken to Jesus. And Jesus said, this voice didn't come because of me but for your sake. He said, I didn't need to hear the voice. I knew God was speaking already. Uh, but uh, you needed to hear it. Now this is, uh, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I... If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. The people answered, we have heard from the, uh, from the law that the Christ remains forever. So the crowd was connecting Jesus to the Messiah. And they said, we hear that, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus said, a little while longer and the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Um, lots packed in there, but I'm going to move on. You can read about it. Verses 37 through 43 um, is a powerful passage, a painful passage, a difficult passage. Uh, because... Here, John talks about a theology of unbelief. Why is it that the Jews refuse to believe on Jesus? Uh, verse 37, although Jesus had done so many signs before them, they didn't believe any. Now, beginning in verse 38, John explains why the Jews refused to believe in Jesus. So that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report to whom... Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So here's, here's what Isaiah, how John, uh, inspired by the Spirit of God, inerrantly and, and, and in every other way, uh, interprets Isaiah here. It's that Jesus has come demonstrating that he is from God. The arm of the Lord has revealed its power through the miracles that Jesus has done, and still people didn't believe. Verse 39, therefore... They could not believe. If I can just take a moment, don't have time, you can read all my footnotes there. They could not believe. Literally, literally, they were unable to believe. Literally, they had no ability to believe. What do we do with that? And then he quotes Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, uh, talking about deaf ears and blind eyes, and, and that's what God did. 
in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 to the people. Isaiah was supposed to go to the people and preach to the people the word of God. And, 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 uh, and, and, and God says, uh, don't worry about it when they reject you because your words are going to bring deafness to their ears and blindness to their eyes so that they could not believe. And what do we do with that? Doesn't God desire for all people to come to faith in Christ? Isn't that his desire? Of course it is. But what do you do with, therefore, they could not believe? Lots of different ways that you can handle this, and none of them are. This is one of those hard sayings that F.F. Bruce talks about, but, but what do you do with it? Some say that they could not believe because God had hardened their hearts, and the reason God hardened their hearts is because they were reprobate chosen from the beginning of time, fated for hell. That's the way some interpret it. Some interpret it like this, they could not believe because they would not believe. This is Augustine. Augustine said they could not believe because they would not believe. Even John Calvin said that their choice was a self-determined choice. They would not believe they could not believe, believe because they would not believe. Um, so what that is is compatibilism. And what that means is that, that they had unbelief and God did not change their unbelief to belief, but rather used their unbelief for his greater purpose. And that was the death of Jesus on the cross. All right? Others, however... And I kind of veer toward this way because of the context. Everywhere Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 is used, it's used in reference, number one, and solely about Israel. Always used about Israel. Isaiah preached to Israel. Everywhere else, even in Romans chapter 10 and 11, this verse is quoted, but it's talking about Israel. So everywhere it's used, it's used in reference to Israel. John is talking about Israel. Why wouldn't they believe? Well, because of the hardness of their heart. They were choosing unbelief. They were, they were embracing unbelief. They had seen all the signs. They had seen the arm of the Lord and power move, and they refused to believe. And so uh, in their unbelief, it led them on a road where God finally said, you will not see. Now, in that regard, it... It fits God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And if you remember in Exodus, uh, God said, let my people go. Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go. And, and, and throughout that account, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I think there's a progression here. The Pharisees, the religious leaders who refused to believe in Jesus, they had seen him open blind eyes. They had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They refused to believe. They refused to believe. They refused to believe. Even the quantitative nature of the signs and the qualitative nature of the signs that Jesus had done before them and that they had heard about, they still refused to believe. So God made them hard. Anyway. Uh, there's a lot more that could be said, but time has gone. Um, and uh, let me finish up chapter 12 right quick. The message of Jesus, beginning in verse 44, uh, Jesus then uh, declares 
his message. Oh, by the way, verse 43, 42 and 43. There were some of the religious leaders who did believe in Jesus, but they did not confess him publicly because of the Pharisees. Um, They were scared of him, lest they be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That verse ought to haunt us as followers of Jesus. Do you love the praise of men more than the praise from God? Anyway, so begin verse 44 all the way to verse 50. He, uh, he preaches. Uh, Jesus cries out and says, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that whoever or the one who believes in me should not abide in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me doesn't receive my words and does not receive my words has that which judges him the world that i have spoken will judge him in the last day for i have not spoke the word that i have spoken will judge him in the last day for i have not spoken on my own authority but the father sent who sent me gave me a command what i should say what i should speak and i know that his command is everlasting life therefore whatever i speak just as the father has told me so i speak and jesus ultimately responds to the unbelief of the Jews with a statement of his message. He had come to give life to everyone who believed on him, and through him, believers can escape the dark shroud of death and sin and live in the light of salvation. But those who reject him ultimately reject the Father who sent him. Jesus speaks his Father's words and his Father's authority, and what he speaks is eternal life. All right? Questions? Woo! Yes. So John describes Mary in chapter 11 with an event that happens in chapter 12. Yes. He, he, all, the, it's like he did with Judas. Judas hadn't betrayed Jesus yet, but Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus in John 12. And so what, what John does is he forecasts what's going to happen. Uh, it's also indicative of there were certain stories that were very popular. Uh, Mary anointing Jesus, that was very popular. Judas, obviously, very popular story. So as John is writing these, uh, this, this story of Jesus, there's some of it that they already knew. Okay? So that, that's one of the reasons. Yes, Where is, where is Lazarus when he's in the grave? All right, great question. I'm not going to give you a satisfactory answer. The question is, where was Lazarus during the four days when he was in the tomb? And, um, the, you know, it's a great question. Um, and the answer is, we don't really know. Uh, he wasn't in paradise because that would be cruel. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, that, but Jesus wouldn't do that. So the most commentators, most scholars, um, when they look at Lazarus' resurrection, it's different in kind. It, it's different than what Jesus experienced. So Jesus was resurrected. Lazarus was raised from the dead. And you might say, well, what's the difference? Well, um, if you take uh, the idea that... Uh, before Jesus was resurrected from the dead, there, there wasn't yet paradise for those who were followers of God, okay? And again, this is, this is some Old Testament theology and New Testament theology and some covenant theology and everything else. So where was Lazarus in that regard? Well, he was in a keeping zone. He was in Sheol, the abode of the dead. That's the Old Testament term. Uh, Sheol was the pit, the grave, um, and some have said it's a place. Uh, it's a place where, uh, if you remember in Ephesians and in 1 Peter, uh, both Peter and Paul talked about Jesus going into the bowels of the earth and setting free captives. And what he's talking about there and the idea there is that when Jesus was killed on the cross... In that moment, he went back to Sheol and he preached to the captives there so that they might be released from Sheol and go to paradise. I'm sorry? Well, I don't know. I don't know. And it would be great help if John would have included that. Um, I'm sure there were a lot of people asking Lazarus where he was. I, we don't know. I, but, but that's one explanation. Another explanation is that, that uh, he was in the bosom of the Father or he was with the Father, but it was not of the same nature as heavenly paradise as we know it today. Others suggest that he was dead and didn't, you know, I mean, he wasn't anywhere. He was just dead. And, uh, and, and so, you know, uh, but there is no, uh, you picked probably the hardest question to answer. Books have been written on that. I, but I don't know. I don't know. Other questions? Thank you for asking that question. Yes. Right. Good question. Uh, the question is, when, when we go through trials and tribulations and it's for God's glory, does our response uh, uh, to that tribulation, is that, is that part of it? And the answer is yes. I mean, we rob God of glory when we go through pain and tribulation and act like God is dead. So, so yes, how we respond to the struggle and the trouble and the pain, if we're acting as if God is dead, we need to work through that, know that we're not there to, you know, we, we're not at the point yet where we're giving God glory. And imagine the first church. I mean, we, we're in America and we enjoy the, the cultural freedoms of being a follower of Jesus and the political freedoms of being a follower of Jesus. But do you realize that for the first two, maybe three centuries of the church, there was not that freedom? They were persecuted. They were killed. They had to 
they, they, they had to, to, to live in caves. They had no jobs. They, they, and, and yet, the, the testimony of that time period was it was taking the world over. We see this in China. We see this in India where persecution is at its height. And yet, the church flourished, not because it was safe, but because their response to their struggle was, I'm going to give God glory. Now, that's the kind of attitude that, that we don't have sometimes. Now, the attitude that we have is, I'm going through this pain and God be cursed. Now, we don't say it like that, but that's how we're living. Great question. Any other questions? Feel free. I'm happy to answer questions. Yes. How do we what? Well, great question. The, the question is, if the Jews were hardened there in, in, in chapter 12, how do we get to them now? Well, the, the answer is the Jews that looked and saw on Jesus, their hearts were hardened, but not all Jews for all time. That, that wasn't a picture of Jews for all time. That was for that context and that setting. Um, the, I think the way we get to Jews or Hindu or Buddhists or, or Muslims or atheists is the same way we've always done it. And that's John 15. We'll get there. Uh, John 15 says that, that when we're the, he's the vine, we're the branches, we're connected to him. We're nourished by him. We experience the love, joy, peace that he's given us. We have a command that he will give us in 14 and in 15 as we love one another. Oh, in 13 too, um, that we love him and we love others. And then John 15, uh, 24, uh, 25 and 26, it says that, that Jesus is going to give us his Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit will bear witness of Jesus. And we, followers of Jesus, will bear witness of Jesus. And I take verses 25 and 26 to to mean that there is a, a joining of our witness with the Holy Spirit's witness that pierces through the hardness of any heart. Um, and, and, and so uh, we're depending on the Spirit of God to do something in another person's heart. After all, John 3 says that no one can come to the Father except for the Spirit of God doing this work of regeneration or new birth in them. And, and so it takes the Holy Spirit to awaken a heart to have faith in Jesus, so that the Spirit of God, uh, traveling along the wings of our witness, pierces the hearts of those whose uh, uh, who, whose hearts maybe have been hardened against Jesus, uh, and pierces the callousness so that they might be drawn to God. That's how it works. I think our job is to make sure that we're witnessing in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our job, and then God takes care of the rest. When I, was, uh, when I was in sixth grade, I went through my first evangelism training, uh, and uh, the guy that was teaching it uh, said uh, that a successful witness is one who uh, witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaves the results unto, up to God. So uh, a successful witness, a su successful evangelism is faithful evangelism, where I'm faithfully sharing Jesus Christ with others in the power of the Holy Spirit, but I leave the results to him. That's not my job. That's his job. And only, only the Spirit of God can melt a hardened heart. Okay? Other questions? 
All right, study up for next week. Thank you all.